The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Now, is it on? Can you hear me? No? Oh, okay, maybe. Well, I talk. I'm a fairly quiet speaker usually, so can you hear me now? Okay. So uh, maybe we'll begin and whoever is missing can come back and join us. So we're just going to start with a, um, another short guided meditation, um, just a 10-minute meditation. So if you'd like to take a, your comfortable upright posture, sense of dignity in the body, And again, um, allow yourself to relax into this posture. Maybe using the breath to breathe into any areas where there's tension and just allow them to release as much as possible. And then again, we'll use the breath as a focus for this little time. So if you just turn your attention to the breath and allow the breath, uh, allow your attention, your awareness to just ride the breath as it comes in and goes out. (coughs) Excuse me. Just notice the the very beginning of the breath, the way it persists, and then comes to a halt, or maybe doesn't, maybe just sort of turns around and begins to move out of the body. Let your awareness follow the entire flow of the breath as it comes in and turns and then goes out again. Just in a natural way, however the breath is moving. And now, again, you might pay attention to where the breath is most prominent in that flow, that flow in and out. Where do you feel it most predominantly? In the nostrils, in the throat, the chest, or the belly? And put your attention in that place for a little bit. Just feel the the breath kind of going past that place of, uh, of strongest sensation.
in that place where there's uh, the strongest breath sensation in your body, can you feel any pleasure in the breath in that space? Is there a sense of satisfaction? Any kind of joy in the feeling of the breath in that, in that place in your body? Maybe a sense of fullness, of ease. Some pleasantness, some pleasure. And if there is, if you notice some pleasure, allow your attention to stay with the pleasure. The pleasure that's in the breath. And it's possible that just by paying attention to the pleasure, it might begin to grow a little bit, to expand a little bit. And if it does, that's fine. And you can just be attentive to that. And notice what the effect of that is on your mind. Continue attending to that flow of breath past that place 
where you feel it most strongly. Seeing if there's pleasure in it. And just allowing that pleasure to to be there and to expand. What does the mind feel like right now? I hope that was helpful. So, um, Kim talked uh, very beautifully about um, the way concentration can be developed in daily life and the way it, the way it, it provides uh, you know, value for us in our lives. And um, so I'm going to talk about the... Uh, the meditative aspect of, of samadhi practice. Um, samadhi, it, it gives power and uh, focus to our mindfulness practice so that we can see more clearly, and that's really, that's the, that's the essence, I think, of its value, that it helps us to see more clearly. Um, there's also a really wholesome pleasure that arises on, in us as uh, as samadhi concentration begins to develop. So there are fewer distractions in the mind. Distractions keep falling away. And uh, the the unskillful roots that Kim talked about fall away. The greed and aversion and delusion, the hindrances. The mind becomes collected, unified. It just it develops power. 
So the benefits become obvious as we continue to practice. And uh, at the same time, we need to use our discrimination when we're practicing uh, samadhi. Um, Before coming to the Dharma, I spent a long time, 20 years, uh, practicing in a way that led to uh, very deep uh, states of samadhi, but without any mindfulness. That, that wasn't part of the practice. Um, I often experienced a lot of bliss and uh, pleasant energy in the body and uh, unification of mind, uni- the, a sense of union with everything, you know, with all of, uh, of the cosmos. <laughs> they were very wholesome states, beautiful states. Um, but I got very attached uh, to being in these states because they were so pleasant. And um, uh, the, uh, actually a state of, permanent state of samadhi was the stated goal of the practice that, that I was in. And after a lot of many years of practice in that way, because I'm kind of a slow learner, um, I, I, I recognized that uh, these states, concentration states, samadhi states, are conditioned just like all other mind states. They're not going to become permanent. They depend on you know, the appropriate conditions being present for them to arise. And I also saw, both in myself and others, that um, the beautiful peace uh, and uh, joy that existed in my my deep samadhi states weren't really translating into my daily life, into my relationship with my relationships with other people. so instead of leading me to more freedom, uh, practicing with samadhi as the goal of practice and without its mindfulness was making me dependent on deep meditation for a sense of well-being and uh, uh, my self-worth as well, I think. So that's one way that we can misuse samadhi by uh, uh, making it uh, just another form of pleasant experience that we cling to, that we attach to and identify with also. And if we use it in that way, you know, it's only going to create more suffering, more bondage in our lives. Um, So that's one way that it can be misused. And also because it's uh, usually so pleasant, samadhi states are, you know, unified. There's there's peace and there's happiness and... uh, there's this, the sense of unification itself is just delightful. And then the lack of hindrances that, that arise that comes along with it um, is really uh, pleasant so that it can be used as an escape from uh, difficult, painful mind states and also physical states. And sometimes I think it's really skillful to use it in this way if something is really difficult for us, if there's a a lot of physical uh, pain or mental pain that is hard for us to be with in a mindful way, then directing our attention to um, something that's more peaceful and allowing um, uh, concentration to develop, samadhi to develop in the mind is really a skillful thing to do. But sometimes there are times when we just don't want to look at something. And so we use um, uh, an ability to get concentrated as a way of uh, just avoiding it. It's not so different from becoming absorbed in, uh, in a movie or, you know, or even a, a drink or a, a drug using uh, some kind of pleasant experience as a way of avoiding what's happening. So we, so we can move ourselves into a lovely state for a time, but um, as the uh, Thai 
uh, teacher Ajahn Chah um, said once, Ajahn Chah was, you know, he was a Thai master of the last century who was, he was a teacher of many of, of my teachers. Um, using samadhi in this way is like putting a lid on a stinky garbage can. And when you come out of samadhi, the lid comes back off the garbage. So, um, so that's another way that it can be misused, uh, samadhi, just as a way of avoiding what could be better served by us directing mindful attention to it. You know, some areas of life that, that could use that kind of attention. So those are two ways. And then a third way that samadhi can be unwise is uh, when a mind that's concentrated con- con- collects around an object that is uh, not a real skillful object to collect around, um, that in the language of the text is unwise or inappropriate. So that the concentration is really supporting us in getting caught in hindrances, caught in uh, aversion or uh, desire or uh, some kind of confusion instead of moving us towards, uh, towards freedom, f- towards seeing cl- clearly. And this often happens on uh, residential retreats. Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas, I don't know if you've have you heard of those. They're, they're very kind of common uh, ways that this happens on retreat. A real, real, real Vipassana romance is, um, happens when uh, the concentration collects around desire for uh, a pleasant object. And the pleasant object in this case is usually another yogi on the retreat who we've never met, you know, never probably ever spoken to, maybe never will speak to again, but we can develop this focus, concentration around uh, desire to be with that person, to know them and de- develop all kinds of fantasies about them. And a, a Vipassana vendetta is kind of the opposite. Somebody might slam a door or clomp through a room and suddenly, you know, if that person left the retreat, everything would be okay. All our mind, all our mind's power just collects around this person. So the concentration gives power to our ability to be attentive, but the attention is a slave to desire or aversion. And then, and so we just, that's another way of creating suffering for ourselves. Um, If mindfulness is weak, this uh, unwise concentration can just collect around anything. On the first retreat that I ever sat, uh, first Vipassana retreat I ever sat there, it was at Spirit Rock, and uh, some, a lot of trees were dying as a result of sudden oak death. A big branch fell off a tree outside the meditation hall, and I turned into the tree police and <laughs> ended up actually writing a note to the managers telling them they should uh, put signs on all the trees that I deemed were dangerous so that yogis wouldn't get hurt walking underneath them. It was, I was completely concentrated around this uh, this topic. <laughs> um, often you'll call this, you'll hear this called yogi mind, this, um, the way concentration can collect around an inappropriate object. I think we have to actually see the suffering in it before uh, we recognize that what's going on is just there's a lot of concentration or some concentration and no mindfulness being applied and unwise attention kind of added in there. So, um, what is, you know, where should we put our attention, you know? What, instead of putting our attention on things that lead to uh, 
a desire and aversion arising in our minds, um, I think a pretty reliable answer to that is the, the, the four foundations of mindfulness. And as on retreats, as our mindfulness and, uh, and concentration both deepen, both become stronger, the episodes of yogi mind sometimes still occasionally arise, but usually um, we see through them more quickly and, and often we're able to laugh at them, which is really great. So those are three kinds of uh, a sort of unwise concentration that often arise in, in practice on the cushion. So what's meant by wise concentration? You know, the opposite, uh, sama samadhi. And in the text, the way it's usually defined is as uh, the four jhanas, which are deeply concentrated states that um, usually take some time and uh, training in order to develop, to enter. Um, and as, we, uh, as concentration deepens, as samadhi deepens, and we begin to approach these states, there are particular qualities of mental and physical experience that are um, said to develop and strengthen, that do develop and strengthen. That the tradition speaks about five of them, which are um, called uh, the jhanic factors, the factors of absorption. And the first two of these are the ability to connect with the meditation object and to stay with it, to, to um, become relatively undistracted from the object, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a breath or something else. And that's what, in the first uh, meditation we did this, this afternoon, that's what Kim was really directing us toward, connecting and then staying with the breath. Um, in Pali, these two factors are called vitaka and vichara. And as they get stronger through continuity of mindfulness, awareness um, just begins to stay, to connect and stay with the breath in a kind of natural way. After a while, um, this connecting and staying, although it does take effort, it begins to bring um, a very satisfying feeling. And when that happens, then um, the third of these factors Become, begins to become apparent. And it's, it's called piti in Pali, P-I-T-I is how it's spelled. And it appears in uh, many, many forms, but in my experience, they all have a very energetic quality. Often it begins with a tingling for me in the hands or the lips, the face, uh, a lot, often a lot of heat in the body, um, thrilling sensations. Um, there can be kind of an overall hum to the body like a motor running. And um, other stronger sensations also happen. There are lists of, you know, what, of different kinds of piti that occur in the, in the suttas and in, in other texts. Um, and along with the energetic sensations, which are usually quite pleasant, um, often quite pleasant, um, there's a kind of rapt attention that develops. Um, and piti is often called rapture. And I think that's a really good word because it, um, it, it seems to uh, cover both the physical uh, kind of energetic sensations and also this rapt attention, which really keeps you connected to the meditation object. And then after some time, there's a fourth of the factors that becomes apparent, and that's a sukha, which is often translated as happiness. Um, I think of it as contentment because it has a very uh, a gentle and a settled uh, quality to it. 
It's not bubbly and effervescent, like piti is sort of bubbly. It's active. Um, Sukha is much more peaceful, in my experience. If, if dukkha is the sense that it, something is off, you know, something is wrong in our, in our lives, in our experience, and sukha is kind of the opposite. Everything seems to be okay. Every, nothing seems wrong when sukha is present. And then the last of the, the, these five factors to develop usually is uh, in Pali, ekagata, which means, uh, translates as one-pointedness. And when this factor is present, um, sometimes there's a sense of the mind just being sort of glued to the object of meditation. So these are the five jhanic factors. And as uh, samadhi deepens and we enter the, the states called the jhanas or the absorption states, um, these factors, uh, at first they, be, they're very, they become very strong and they're, they're quite well balanced in the first of the jhanas. They're all, they're all present and balanced. And, uh, so that e- and the mind develops a sense of seclusion. It's almost like being in a cave. There's a sense of being com- separated from uh, the rest of the world. Even if we are aware of what's going on in the room or aware of having thoughts in the background of the mind, um, there's still this sense of being in a kind of a cave, a, med- a peaceful abode. The hindrances are then held at bay. They don't arise. And that's, you know, that in itself is such a great relief. It's just wonderful. And as samadhi strengthens, um, and we move from the, from the first jhana into the second jhana, then uh, these first two factors, the coarser factors of connecting and sustaining, they drop away because they're not necessary anymore. We don't need to make any effort to stay with the meditation object. It becomes a very natural kind of an organic process to stay with it. Um, and then uh, at that point, the piti becomes very strong, the, um, this energetic feeling. And it can be uh, very pleasant. And it can also be a little bit too much. And as it continues to develop, um, what happens is that that also falls away, the piti, the, uh, the energetic kind of sensations and this rapt quality, they kind of, they soften and what becomes much more prominent is uh, the happiness, the sukha. And that can feel like it's completely pervading our whole, our body, our whole experience of life is just pervaded by this happiness that isn't dependent on anything outside the mind. It's a very, very lovely state to experience. And then um, that's the third jhana is, is kind of characterized by the presence of sukha, happiness, contentment. And then at some point when the samadhi is very strong, even this uh, f- feels like too much and what, what all that remains in the mind is uh, equanimity. The sukha falls away as well. There's this balance, a very peaceful, calm state. Um, that is, it's really, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but it's very, very satisfying. So, you know, why are these states um, what are called, uh, you know, right concentration, sama samadhi in the suttas? Um, what makes them right, you know? What makes them wise? I think um, it's the growing stillness in the mind that develops as we move through these jhanic states. The, the peace that develops is really conducive to the arising of insight 
And that's what our practice is aiming for. You know, the practice is about wisdom, clear seeing, uh, not at just a pleasant abiding in lovely states. And there are no hindrances to get in the way of the clear seeing. As we move through the states, the jhanic states, we keep letting go of mental activity, more and more mental activity, until uh, nothing remains but this deep peace and balance. So we're training the mind in letting go, letting go, letting go. The mind becomes really soft and still, and there's a a strength that's born of... uh, this soft stillness. It, it becomes what the Buddha called malleable and wieldy, which is a phrase I really love. Malleable and wieldy. It's flexible and it's also able to be used. And then we can bring mindfulness into this flexible stillness and look really closely at what's happening, at what's arising in, our, uh, in consciousness. And nothing is distracting our awareness at that point. There's nothing to distract awareness. And this just creates wonderful conditions for, uh, for seeing the deep truths of our existence, for uh, seeing the truths that inform wise view and that lead to wise intention and that begin to liberate us from clinging. So wise concentration allows wise view, the experience of the truth of the Four Noble Truths, um, of, and the truth of causality to penetrate really deeply into us. And that, you know, that just can profoundly change the way we relate to our, our lives, the way we relate to all of our lives. So, that's what I have to say about unwise and wise concentration. I think I talked too long, too, there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for your attention. Um, so again, this is now the time for you to talk with each other. Um, so let's see if we can split up again into groups of three. I think we're missing one person, so there may be one group of two. And uh, if you could do that in kind of a simple, composed way right now, then uh, I'll uh, drop the question for you to talk about. Okay, well, we could have one group of two, I think. Oh, okay. Okay, so um, what what we'd like you to talk about is um, what conditions have you noticed that are supportive for concentration on the cushion? Things like quiet, clean surroundings, finishing up daily life, physically relaxing, and whatever it is that might help support you in um, entering that kind of state um, you could share with each other. And you could also talk about how you might further develop these. So, again, uh, just t- take the time to uh, talk to each other. And I think we'll ring the bell again in about uh, 11 minutes. So, please.
That seemed very uh, energizing. Um, would some of you like to share what you might have um, come up with out of that exercise? What things might have been support have been supportive for you, or you might um, you might think that would be supportive for you, and that you'd like to develop. So uh, now would be a wonderful time to share that with the rest of the group. Well, I, I like the word. Can you hear me? Curious. That was, Shin Kwan said that, and that, that was helpful to me. Like, that, that, that often is the missing element when um, I lose my serenity or, you know, whatever my mindfulness, um, you know, if I'm triggered by something. I forget to be curious. And, um, you know, I think there's a good reason for this. <laughs> And it's probably not having anything to do with me. It's some, something out there. So um, I like that because it's kind of gentle. It's not like my sort of mindset is figure out where this is coming from. You know, it's not the taskmaster approach. It's more, uh, it's kinder. So that's, that's one thing I'll take away today. We talked about a counting exercise that I think was in the, the last, um, maybe in the last chapter of counting up to 10 and then backwards down to one and then back up to 10 or up to nine and down. And I um, had tried it, but I didn't, I felt like it was a discipline. And now I'm, after talking to the others, I was thinking that it would be worth doing that for a while and then using that as a tool to then concentrate. Because um, I think I was just doing it and saying, I can do that, but not using it then. So. Our group talked more about um, the sensory processing, I guess. Um, so we talked, for instance, about uh, sounds that we notice when we meditate and how um, to take care of them by moving them from the foreground to the background. Uh, which is something you can train yourself to do, and then you become more neutral to them. Um, then I also brought up the idea of um, physical proximity. So there are instances where we come to meditate, and it's very, very crowded. It's like people sitting on top of each other. Um, so for me personally, I find it hard then to concentrate where it's a group like here today. There is some space. Um, so I don't know how to <laughs> resolve that, but it's definitely something that I am aware of. I guess we got off on talking about how good it was to go on retreat. <laughs> Just for the time, the continuity and the time um, there with, the st with that structure just allows a person to relax and, and uh, concentration for, for me and, and uh, Janet, Janet uh, uh, sort of rises on its own. <laughs> I think through that being held in retreat, it just is, is a wonderful place to 
needed. I think it's a natural part of our mind. You know, it's not some weird thing we're trying to get from outside our minds. It's part of us. And so when the conditions are right, it just arises. Yeah, we don't really, we don't have to work for it necessarily. Okay, um, well, we have just a, f a few minutes left. So uh, I wanted to start by reminding you that the final meeting of this group will be next month. It'll be on a Saturday on May 10th from 12.30 to 3.30. So it'll actually be three hours long rather than two hours long and on a Saturday. And... You know, although we've told you that this was the Eightfold Path class, that we'll actually be talking about the Tenfold Path. Um, so if that piques your curiosity, you can come next month. And, and uh, I think it's going to the bonus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Something like double jeopardy. I don't know. <laughs> so I think that'll be Kim and I and uh, Chris Clifford. So, oh, and there's handouts up here for right concentration. Um, if you're a, uh, I, I think you've probably gotten these emailed to you, but if you want a paper copy, they're available. So, uh, thank you all for coming today. Yes. Unless your mentor is somebody like me who's kind of fallen behind. <laughs> so talk to your mentor about it. <laughs> Some of us are uh, recalcitrant. Okay, so thank you all. And um, may you be do well. <laughs>